0: This is Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life, session number six with Pam Chambers. Hello everyone, and welcome to Smart Choices for a Happier Life, where it's a community of people working together for social good. Let's share love, peace, and let's talk. Here's your host, Pamela Chambers.
1: Good morning, everybody. Summer is over. School's in session. I have twin daughters, and they've just begun middle school. I have already seen lots of middle school drama. My one daughter loves it. My other daughter hates it. She's begging me to be homeschooled. The daughter who hates it, or who hates it, said the eighth graders are scary. I think she's been getting some initiation by the eighth graders. I'm just telling her be patient, give yourself time to adjust. Well, last week I didn't get any before school tears and no requests for homeschooling, so I think she's adjusting. However, um, she did go to her first high school football game, which I think helped her realize how much fun it can be. Well, today we have a fabulous guest. She is the co-author of two New York Times bestselling books, and today she's here with us. The book Nurture Shock was on the New York Times bestselling books bestseller list for more than six months, and an Amazon top nonfiction 100 book for over a year. This book has become a worldwide phenomenon with editions published around the world in 16 languages to date. I love this book and so do my clients. We are interviewing Ashley Merriman today. Self-esteem, you know, can be such an elusive topic. How do we build good self-esteem in our children? Interesting topic. We all think children need to have good self-esteem. Actually, it's not true. Researchers have debunked the self-esteem myth, and Ashley is going to be giving us new information to challenge our current thinking about parenting. We all want our children to succeed. She is an award-winning journalist and co-author, again, of the two New York Times best-selling books. The two books are Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, and Nurture Shock. And Nurture Shock is new thinking about children. How do we help our children achieve in life, from sports to academics? Parents, you're going to love this topic. It's a wake-up call for all parents. We have been doing it all wrong. This podcast will help us learn what research is showing us that debunks some current parenting myths. So, to to help give us new thinking about our parenting, let us welcome Ashley Merriman to our show today. All right. Well, hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us. As I was sharing with you earlier, I was just talking about your book to a client today, and it was very exciting. It's so nice to have as a resource. Now, I was introduced to you, actually, you and your work through the Costco Connection magazine, and who would have ever
0: figured, huh? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I've actually gotten a lot of response. Uh- I wrote a piece for Cops Co. about how I hate everybody gets a trophy programs, and a lot of people have been emailing going, hey, um, not everybody agrees, but it's been interesting to sort of, you know, have that, people just feel so strongly about the issue, it's really fascinating.
1: Well, controversial topics always get people talking, so that's good.
2: But who even knew it was controversial?
0: <laughs> I know well when you when it comes to parenting issues people are have very strong opinions from yes. what I can understand but actually I was talking i go visit the Small Business Development Center in Maricopa County and it's a fabulous place actually. And I was talking to Kristen Slice who works there. It just kind of helps support small business in the Maricopa County. Uh And she and I were talking about the Costco Connection Magazine and we both were in agreement. It's one of our favorite uh, business publications. (laughs) How fun. Well, great. Yeah. And you know, we got your topic in that article was Universal Trophies. So can you give an idea to the audience Universal Trophy, what that's about?
2: Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea is really, you know, programs where everybody gets a trophy so that you... Well, often you don't know going in. I think that's part of the problem is people don't realize it until the award ceremony at the end of the season. But what we're talking about is, you know, athletic teams, really any organization that gives kids a medal or some sort of trophy simply for participating. And you know, a lot of them will even say, if you look in small type on the registration form, by registering you get a team trophy. Team Or a, a team picture, a uniform, and a trophy for your kid. And so you don't even actually need to show up. You don't even need to participate. But everyone who participates in some way is going to get a trophy at the end of the, the season. And yeah. I hate that.
0: <laughs> well, so I do mean, too. And that was it was interesting because I have a memory of my brother actually getting one, and he saw right through it. Mm-hmm. My brother was laughed. he and I both laughed at it, he goes, I didn't even go to the game and I got a trophy.
2: Right, exactly, and that's why I hate it. I, um, you know, we've now, Pope Bronson and I uh, have written two books, uh, Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children, and Top Dog, The Science of Winning and, and Losing, and we... You know, and and as we were doing that, you know, when I started out, I wasn't militantly against everybody gets a trophy, but I've become more and more anti the idea and for a bunch of reasons. One is the kids aren't fooled, just like your brother said, This is ridiculous. Uh, But I also think, you know, that the kids who do participate and the kids who did go to the games are also just as sort of thrown and think it's ridiculous that everyone gets the same trophy. I've heard from those kids who say, you know, I was tricked. I worked hard and I got the same thing everybody else did. Well, I'm not making that mistake again.
0: Oh, that makes sense because that was my brother. You know, my brother got a trophy. He didn't even go to the game and he got a trophy. So you can imagine what the kids who went and worked hard at the game that got a trophy, what they might think. And that's just what you're saying.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. The uh, re, you know, research, there's not a ton on everybody specifically getting trophy programs. But what we have are things that show that, you know, telling everyone you're all going to get certificates to preschoolers who color means that after they get the certificate they're less interested in coloring and what preschooler shouldn't be interested in coloring um, but simply knowing that they get them once means they expect to get them continually and it's not that I think one participation medal is necessarily going to destroy a kid's psyche I, I'm, it may, but I'm not really focused on that but the problem is kids are getting as many as 8 or 9 participation medals in a single day for oh a single, my gosh. they get, yeah, they get participation in every single event they do, like in a karate tournament. So they can come home with eight or nine medals, not having actually won a single thing. And I think the message over time is nothing is worth doing unless you get a trophy, unless mm. you get some sort of public acclaim. And my argument, especially for young kids, is you know, they need time to learn if they like an activity. Before they're being told, we're going to judge you on this or we're going to give you an award. We need kids to say, you know, I'm just here to hang out with my friends. I don't care about the trophy. That's fine.
0: Perfect. Yeah, and because we want to introduce our children to different things and we don't even know if they're going to like it. You, want to, you want to build the, the intrinsic motivation versus the extrinsic motivation.
2: Absolutely, and you know, what we wrote about in Top Dog is that the benefit of competition, so the benefit of participating in something like soccer, is not the trophy. It's not the win or the loss. We can't be so focused on the end result and saying how we did, whether we had a trophy or whether we won, is why we did it. The benefit of competition, the benefit of all of this, is an improvement, and that happens in the moment and it happens over time. And you have to understand, and this is hard, I think, but you need to learn that it can take a really long time to be good at something. And that's okay as long as you keep learning from your mistakes and making progress. And every time we hand a kid a meaningless trophy, we're telling them it's not about improvement. We're not, it's not about Um, growth and understanding things take a while instead it's this instant gratification every day you must be a winner and I think it's really destructive to kids instead you really need to say does this is this important to you do you enjoy this do you want to do this and give them that time to sort of learn and grow and improve before you know it's a competitive thing so i don't advocate that everything needs to be a competition some people misrepresent my perspective that way i don't believe that at all right but so no one get a trophy then everyone
1: get a trophy
0: yeah <laughs> so what you're saying is first of all you introduce them to the sport to see if they like it or love it mhm sure and then you graduate to focusing in on improvement at your own level in your own time
2: well, I think improvement is always the focus, no matter
0: where you are.
2: I know Olympic athletes who throw tantrums after they've won a meet.
0: Because they knew they were oh, going to win the meet. I got you.
2: They knew they were going to win, right? They already knew that they were the one Olympian. They were there to set a new course record, or a new personal best, or a world record. And the medal itself was irrelevant. I recently, a couple weeks ago, went to the U.S. Swimming National Championships, And Michael Phelps was there, and Ryan Lochte was there, and Tyler Clary, and Colin Jones. And the second the medal ceremony had finished, they would walk over to the stands and hand their medals to a random kid sitting in
1: the stands. Oh my gosh, that's great.
2: Um, Yeah, and the kids were freaking out. And uh, apparently, um, Ryan and Michael do that regularly. They're handing their medals away. And... You know, for everyone who tells me, you know, well, the, it's really important that the kids get a trophy. I'm looking at these world class, world record holder Olympians who are just giving them away as fast as they possibly can. They're not there for the piece of tin. They're there to see what they can accomplish. And, you know, to me, great competition is when everyone does well, right? And, and it's about inspire. It's not about taking down someone else and saying you're a winner, you're a loser. It's about saying. I'm challenging myself to do the best I can, and I use other people, not to take them down, but as reference points of how much more can I go. And it was really interesting to me, So I'm currently a little obsessed with swimming, because I was at Nationals, Uh, but but before, um, a few months ago, um, when Michael Phelps had announced his retirement, uh, people asked Ryan Lochte, you know, what do you think? And he didn't say, oh, goody, goody, more gold medals for me. He said, I don't think that Michael's retired. I, I don't believe it. And when Michael came back, people went to Ryan and said, Ryan, what do you think? And he didn't say, darn, less gold medals for me. He said, well, I knew he was coming back. And I'm happy because Michael makes me swim better.
0: Oh, wow. And
2: I said, yeah, he probably does. And there, they were at nationals, and Ryan had won a gold, and Michael Phelps had won a silver in that particular heat. And the post-swim interview, the guy said, "Michael, you know, what do you feel about swimming? You know, in the lane next to Ryan again?" And Michael said, "I love it because Ryan makes me swim better."
1: Wow, that's and great.
2: That's what we're talking about.
1: It's not winning it's, or losing. It's just
2: it's not about winning or losing. It's about challenging yourself and saying I can always do more. And I was really delighted, um, Cullen Jones, who's you know, a two-time Olympian. We wrote about him in Top Dog. Uh, he was on the famous Beijing Olympic relay that you know was just ridiculous in its win during the Olympics. And Cullen was giddy after he got a silver place finish in the 50 fly. And he said, Well, I'm so excited to be back on Team USA. And, but what was really great was I did the whole 50 meter race without taking a breath. I've never done that before.
1: Wow, again his personal achievement.
2: Exactly. That you know, these guys who've been swimming and getting medals and getting endorsement deals are still trying to find these new little ways to challenge themselves. And when they do it, they are. They're just beaming from ear to ear. Look
0: what I did. Oh, geez, that's great. Now let's let's get to parenting and how do we, you know, motivate our children. You know, your book, Nurture Shock, was fabulous by the way and it really stands out sort of as the leader on this topic and I just want to thank you for writing this book and shedding light on such important topic you know as far as and let's go to chapter one the inverse power of praise you know because we've been doing it wrong as parents sometimes you know you have you've debunked some uh, parenting myths so mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the inverse power of praise for parenting
2: um, yeah well and I actually think it um is directly related to the everybody gets a trophy, uh, because there is research and empty praise and empty trophies have the same psychological effect. And where, where we really, the catalyst for nurture shock was that I found research by Stanford professor Carol Dweck. And at the time, I'm hoping it's changed a little bit. Uh, but she had done a survey and found that 85% of American parents thought it was important to praise kids for their intelligence, to say things like, oh, honey, you're so smart. And yes. She, I and hear that all
0: the time in my office. The first yeah, thing parents they, will say is, my kid's so smart.
2: Yeah, it needs to stop. Well, if, she, if they're talking to you and not the kid, that's one thing. But if they're talking <laughs> to the kid, that's a different issue. And, um, and what she found is that when kids hear, I'm so smart, it works as a motivator until they experience failure. Oh. But over time, kids have been learning that their success is based on this innate skill and they either they've got it or they don't. And things like effort become stigmatized because effort's for that dumb kid next to me who can't do it because of their natural special gifts. I have special gifts. They don't.
0: Ooh, and right.
2: Carol even found then that Kids become invested in these identities of I'm special, I'm talented, I'm smart, I'm wonderful, and they actually will underachieve because they don't want to do anything to lose that title of I'm so smart. And I see this with my tutoring kids. I run an all-volunteer tiny little tutoring program in inner city Los Angeles, and I see my tutoring kids do it all the time. They, you know, the fifth graders will say, I need to read a book. I'm like, okay, sure, go get a book. Always read a book. Happy to hear it. And they come back with Dr. Seuss. And it's not because they love A Walk It In My Pocket so much. It's because they know they can do it. And they want that sort of easy reassurance that they're smart and that they can do it. And I'm saying, no, I want you to read something a little harder than that. I want to read something maybe ideally grade level and challenge yourself. I don't want perfection. I don't want you to prove to me you're a great reader. Again, it's about improvement.
0: Yeah, you quote in the book, look smart and don't risk making mistakes. Mm
2: -hmm, Right. That's the kid perspective when they become really invested in these titles. And so the better praise and the better, well, my favorite thing when I talked to Carol once, she said, you know, the best praise isn't praise at all. The best praise is,
0: how do you think you did? Oh, not even, you put a lot of effort in this. How do you think you did? I mean, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but...
2: You know, right now, especially in the sort of, you know, concern over helicopter parenting and over-parenting, and even if you're not one of those helicopter parents, because I think every crazy story makes people go, well, that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you think you did? Asks the kid to think about their own reflection. You know, why I hate everybody gets a trophy is because we say, how you think you did is irrelevant. Here's a trophy. and how do you think you did makes the kid say "Hmm, well maybe I could have worked harder or I worked really hard on that and I'm proud of that and you should give me some compliment well if, if she genuinely really worked hard on it and is proud then I have no problem with praise I don't think you should praise the person because it's really easy to change what you do it's really hard to change who you are So, if you're not just going to let the kid decide, and I think that many times that's the best thing, if you're going to actually give praise, you want to focus on what they did and how they did it, not who they are. So, you know, I, with my tutoring kids, you know, five years ago, before I read Carol's work, you know, someone would have handed me an essay, oh, my gosh, you're so smart. This is so
1: great. Oh, gotcha. So,
2: this was a total lie, right? And they knew it most of the time, just like your brother wasn't fooled. Right. But, but now, you know, if they worked on it, and I saw that they were working on it hard, I'd say, oh, you worked really hard on that. But so the better praise then helps the kids but the next time they have an essay, they sit down and they think, well, she worked. She liked the fact that I worked hard on it, so I should work hard on this one, too, as opposed to just, you know, write something in a car in the way tutor tutoring. But, again, trying to empower the kids to find their own understanding of what they need to do. Um, I changed how I do feedback because of Elena Bodrova, uh, who's the inventor of the Tools of the Mind program with Debbie Leong. Yeah, Elena and I had talked for a long time and Elena said, you know, your A student does not get 100% every time. Your A student walks out of a quiz and you say, hey, honey, how'd you do? Ooh, yeah. Well, hmm, I, got, I got number three wrong and number five, six, and seven, I think I got like half credit and the rest I got right. Your C student and your D student and your F student walk out of that same quiz. Hey, honey, how'd you do? I don't know. They don't have that sense of how did you do. And because of it, they're waiting for external feedback to say you did well or you did poorly. And the problem then is they don't know do they need to reread that chapter or do more practice problems or ask someone for help because they don't have that sense of do I have this or not. And what we need to do in praise is give kids replicable, specific things that they can do so they can say, oh, I need to do that again. You know, my little kids in tutoring, I used to say, oh, you're such a great artist. And now I say, wow, you drew on the paper and not the table this time. And you used different colors. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, you're, so, you're actually empowering the children. You know, you're, you're giving them the sense of power when you're saying, how do you think you did? Mm-hmm. You're empowering them because if they feel they did poorly, they can do things to improve that. Right.
2: And when they do well, you know, praise needs to be honest. That's my uber-praise tip is, you know, don't use tip praise for manipulation or anything else. It should be honest feedback. And if they did it well, then you give them the specifics of what you think they did well so they can do it again.
0: Yeah, somebody told me once, you know, like you're, like you said, if your child colors a picture, just don't say, oh, it's a pretty picture. You can say, gosh, I like the reds and the blues and how mm-hmm. you... Put those together to create this or that kind right. of thing.
2: Absolutely, and that helps them then remember what they did, and then hopefully they'll be able to do it again. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, can excessive praise sometimes create perfectionism in our children? Oh,
2: absolutely. Although I think before I talk about that, you know, perfectionism gets a bad rap. There, and the researchers who actually study perfectionism say that there's adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. My publisher expects when I turn in a manuscript that it's right. I'm supposed to work really hard on it, and I have standards for excellence, and I have done fact-checking and all of that. There aren't supposed to be typos. It's supposed to be right. And that's considered adaptive perfectionism as long as I make my deadline. If I turn in my book, if I can't turn in my book because I'm still fact-checking and I'm still changing and I'm still rewriting and everything's just not as perfect as it's supposed to be and it becomes incapacitating, that's maladaptive perfection.
0: Oh, gotcha. So,
2: you know, so when we talk about perfection, I think we really want to be careful that a pursuit of excellence is fine. Standards, you know, high standards are great. It's only when they become paralyzing and things that you can't meet that's when it's a problem. But the research has shown that overpraise does actually sort of catalyze this maladaptive perfectionism. Because, you know, if you tell a kid, oh my gosh, you got an A on this test. I love you so much. Well, what happens tomorrow when they get a B?
0: Oh, gotcha. You're associating too love with yeah, A's, and all that stuff.
2: Exactly. So if I'm that kid who knows that mom who perceives rightly or wrongly, who perceives that my mom's affection for me is dependent on my A, am I going to stay up an extra hour agonizing over the paper before I turn it in? Yeah, I am. So that's that maladaptive perfectionism because now you're fearful of making mistakes and sort of second-guessing and panicking to the point that you can't actually do something. Or, like I was saying, the fifth-graders who read Dr. Seuss because they know they'll succeed and it's better to succeed and be perfect than it is to try something new and risk screwing up.
0: Gotcha. So, so maladaptive perfectionism is almost like fearful of being perfect. You have it, an element of fear in it. Well,
2: it, it is. It's not an element. It's not fearful of being perfect. It's fearful of being not perfect.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay, that, I see the difference. That's, I
2: think, the issue. Um, they're worried about perfection, and they, they feel like they must have it. And that's, obviously, that is the problem. And it's interesting that you know, they... Um, have done some eye tracking studies and they you know tell kids oh your drawing is so wonderful and in eye tracking the kids eyes immediately starts fixating on the mistakes oh geez. and the more you tell them how great it is the harder they look at the mistakes
1: why would that be
2: because they're worried again about losing that title of wonderful so oh. they're thinking Well, is that insincere praise? Because that's obviously a problem. But they're also saying, does mommy not know that I screwed up? I see, but I'm not going to tell her. But, oh, no, look at that mistake and look at that mistake. I don't know if I deserve this. I've got to be worried about my mistakes. So they literally lose sight of the big picture. Because they're just focused on those mistakes and preventing them. But rather than trying again and doing something bigger, they go smaller and smaller to control more and more of the details.
0: Gotcha. So how do we as parents help build intrinsic motivation for our children?
2: Well, intrinsic motivation is sort of a psychological uh, term of art, which is the idea that I really just say it's the thing you love to do okay you do it because you love it right um an extrinsic motivation would then be everything else um uh, you know it's i go to work because they pay me i go to soccer because i get a trophy i work hard on my test because i'm getting an a uh i wore a new blouse so that my friends would say it was nice and that they thought it looked okay. Um, so every you know, everything else is extrinsic motivation. And right. and what we want to do, and the research pretty much shows that intrinsic motivation starts out and extrinsic motivation kills it. Oh, so okay. I mentioned those preschool kids who started out loving drawing, but once you gave them a certificate, it was no longer about that I love drawing. It was
0: what do I get out of this? Exactly. I had a professor who once told us, I'll give you something you, give me something you love to do, I'll start to pay you for it, and you won't love it as much.
2: And, and he was absolutely right. I think that, you know, you have to, you know, although there are some, you know, kind of codicils and tweaks on that. Um, if you weren't expecting payment, but somebody surprised you, sometimes, you know, a present or something like that doesn't necessarily diminish the intrinsic motivation. In the same way, telling someone beforehand, every time you get a book, I'll buy you pizza.
0: Oh, gotcha. Right. You're you're trying to almost control their behavior.
2: Well, it's not almost. That's exactly what you're doing. And they know that. And, you know, I tell people, I mean, you may love your job, but if your boss says, hey, I can't pay you this week, you don't show up because you love the job. Right? <laughs> right. And, and the reality is that, you know, in the real, you know, it's easy to sort of separate these things in the lab. The reality is in the real world, everything is going on simultaneously in terms of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I do love my job, but I am having to pay, you know, rent and insurance and all of that. So I have
1: bills. I need income. Right, exactly. So, And and they're happening so fast, it's even on a
2: subconscious level, we're not even aware consciously which motivation, intrinsic or extrinsic, is actually operating in a moment. These are, I mean, milliseconds back and forth you can go, and that changes your behavior.
0: Right.
2: when you're talking about kids, what I'm saying is, you know, give them that time to develop intrinsic motivation. Give them that time to decide if they love it before you add the peer pressure the paternal pressure, the grandparents, the teachers, the trophies, whatever. And, you know, give them that time as long as they possibly can to just love it or learn they hate it. That may happen sometimes too, but hopefully that means they've learned they like something else more.
0: Exactly. How do you do that though? Because if they start in Little League, they're already competing. You know, they start games and competition right away. Well, again,
2: I guess that really depends on the league. I mean, I, people tell me all the time, you know, my team doesn't keep score
1: or soccer.
0: Oh, I like that.
2: Oh, I don't. I think that's ridiculous.
0: Oh, what do, what do you think is good?
2: Well, I mean, I, what I tell people when they say our team doesn't keep score is, no, you don't post a score. But every kid...
0: No, oh gosh. Yeah, they Everything do.
2: Kicked and missed the ball. You're right. Right, you just told them that they have to pretend they don't know. But they totally know. They just want to involve you in the conversation. Um and it's better to say we need to include, uh, you know, respect everyone. It's okay to have differences in ability. We still respect people, you know. You can be good at soccer, I can be terrible at soccer, but we still respect the contribution to the team. So the score is less important, right? You focus less on that end result. The, um, but, you know, it, it, it could also, especially if a kid really didn't know if they liked baseball yet or not, why do you put them in a team? First, you know, give them some time with, you know, in a, in a batter's box or where they're just practicing throwing or they're practicing, you know, what are the rules? You don't have to have an actual game for you know, and true novice to figure out what's going on. So I think, you know, that's in the competition side. I found that really fascinating that true novices, true beginners, and this doesn't apply just to sports, it applies to anything, uh, but true novices shouldn't have any competition, shouldn't have any judgment at all. They should just have the time to learn what they're doing. The elite, like I mentioned the Olympians, mm-hmm. they're really competing against themselves. Right. No matter who else is in the pool, who else is on the field, they're competing against themselves. And it's those middle group that competition, awards, recognition are more important because they are trying to figure out, am I as good as I think I am? Do I have this? And they're trying to understand if they master it. And I I think about this. I thought about this last night in tutoring. I had a new game. And you know the tutoring kids always get excited when I bring in a new board game. New board game, and I said, well, "Let's let's do it. Let's play the game." No, I don't like it. But you just told me you've never played it. Yeah, but I don't like it. I want to no, know. Like, but you never played this before. How do you know you haven't liked it? Right? Fear of making a mistake. Fear oh, of- there you go. And I said, "Well, we're not going to keep score because nobody knows the rules. We're just going to practice, and we're going to figure it out." Okay, so we could just try and help me understand the rules of the game because I don't even know them either. It's a brand new game.
1: Wow.
2: And what happens is 10 minutes into the game, you know what happens, right? So are we keeping score? (laughs) Right. As soon as kids have a sense of mastery of I got this, that's when they want the competition. That's what they want to have the feedback and the judging, and that's what makes it exciting.
1: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So it's about
2: timing in terms of exposing kids to the you know, the extrinsic motivation, whatever form they come in. But at first they've gotta have that sense of I have a skill, I I grasp the rules, I can go forward. And that's what we're looking about. And whether we're talking about a board game or reading, you know, I Alina reminded me very and I again thought about this all night last night in tutoring. You know, so much of what we think is helping kids learn and tutoring is actually just a quiz. What do you mean? I'll give you an example. The paper says seven times three. Do you know what seven times three is?
1: Oh, gotcha.
2: Now we're saying that because if they don't, we'll give them the answer. But from their perspective, you just put them on the spot. You gave them a quiz. Do you know what seven times three is? And uh, so right away. You know, whether you're reading a vocabulary, I'm always really mindful. You know, if I'm reading a story with a kid now, I'll put my finger and we'll, we'll go around the words. And I'll let, you know, maybe I'll start by reading. So you don't even have to read. You can just listen and read along with me. You don't have to do it out loud. And if they say, no, I want to read out loud. I know I can do this book. This is a good level for me. I want to read it. Great. Go for it. And I'll have their finger and I'll be waiting for the pause when they get to a word they don't know, and I'll say it really quietly, and then they'll keep going. But it's not. Do you want to read this? It's a brand new book. They don't know if they can read this. It's scary. You're going to ask. You're asking them. Are you willing to embarrass yourself? They don't want to do that. I don't want to embarrass myself. Do you? No. So really making sure that they don't feel like they're put on the spot.
0: Oh, got you. So when you started the reading of the book, you know you weren't just handing them the book and giving that question pops into their mind.
2: Well, that happens, too, a lot of times. I mean, with my tutoring kids, you know, they'll grab a book, and and especially if it's a new kid, I don't know exactly what their reading level is, but, you know, sometimes, you know, 12 seconds later, they'll come back and throw the book angrily in the bookshelf.
0: Oh, gotcha. Enough. I don't like
2: it. Well, with that usually, I don't like it, or it's boring, usually means it's too hard, and I didn't know the words. Gotcha. So, again, they're feeling, and they did that one to themselves, <laughs> but... But, you know, just look for what are the ways, when we think we're helping, but what we're actually doing is putting kids on the spot. You know, solving long division is about knowing where to put the numbers in the right column, remembering the times tables, remembering how to subtract. And at each point, if we say, okay, do this problem, I'll watch you and see when you went wrong, as opposed to focusing on, let's go through this step by step and make sure you got each step right.
0: Got you. Teaching them mastery. Exactly. Okay, got it. And I, I do have to, I want to talk about one of your ch- chapters, chapter three, just mm-hmm. because it's been a big topic of conversation sometimes with my clients and things along that line in, as far as parenting goes. You mm-hmm. know, and I know we're, we're changing topics here, but why don't white parents talk about race?
2: oh, it's really a very simple reason. Uh, they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, and one of my clients said, he said, well, I worry they're so innocent. Why should I point it out?
2: Right. Well, you know, parents, white parents, minority parents do talk about race. And this is not just some random thing. The Journal of Marriage and Family asked parents. And minority parents, about 75 85% of them all said, yes, we talk about race with our kids and none of the white parents did and the white parents are mostly and and again there have been studies on this they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and the white parents are saying well race doesn't matter so if i say hey did you see that the person who's working at the store was black that doesn't matter we were nice to them that the white parents saying well if it didn't really matter why did i even say such a ridiculous thing
1: Oh, gotcha.
2: ...nice and respectful to the person at the store, and the kid will get it. The problem is, and so if they talk about race, they talk in code words. um, Everybody's equal, or what matters is on the inside. But the problem with this is that kids already perceive the racial difference. I mean, they're not literally colorblind. They actually can see a kid's brown skin just as much as they can see that kid's wearing a blue shirt. Right. right? But we keep, by, by refusing to have the conversations about it, to even acknowledge the difference, we're communicating to kids that this is a topic that's so toxic, we can't talk about it. Uh, we leave it to the kids to talk about on the playground, if then. And instead, we want to say, yes, there are people who, you know, I don't know any parent who had would have a problem saying boys and girls can both be doctors and lawyers and cooks and teachers and whatever they want to be. Right. That doesn't, right? Right. Well, you can do the same thing. Brown people and white people and people who speak Spanish and people who speak Chinese and people who speak English can all be doctors or lawyers or work in schools or be teachers or whatever they want to be. And we should be everyone's friend. But these neutral statements, everybody's equal or what matters on the inside, are so vague, kids don't even know it's about race or ethnicity. My, my favorite example of this I was at a panel discussion, and the woman had been saying what matters is on the inside for years. And finally, her, um, her nine-year-old boy burst out. Mom, why do I care about people's kidneys? <laughs> Completely flummoxed by the whole pseudo conversation that he had no idea what they were having, and so that's the key: is just to be very frank, and you know, and not in public. I've heard a lot of horror stories where you know, kids suddenly, um, you know, walk, a white kid will walk up to a black person and say, "Wow, you're brown."
1: Wow.
2: And 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 then the the mom panics, and the person you know is hurt feelings and. So, the, you know, uh, April Harris put a researcher at the University of North Carolina says, you know, that's called the unicorn effect. And you don't want to wait till you see a unicorn. Instead, you want to have a conversation at home that people look differently, but you have to treat all of them nicely. You can't assume because someone looks differently than you that they can't be your friend. And and, and because little kids, you know, I, none of this has been as a criticism or finger-pointing of little kids, but, you know, you picture... A little girl, her first day at kindergarten, and she wants a friend. Well, how is she going to pick who's going to be her friend? She looks for the girl who looks like her.
1: Right. They naturally are sort of inherent in picking people who are similar.
2: Well, they assume that the visual appearance translates to other things. The researchers call it essentialism. So, the little blonde girl with ringlets sees another little girl with blonde with ringlets and says, Oh, wow! If she looks like me, then she must like pepperoni pizza and Candyland like me too. Gotcha. And that girl with the weird hair and who has that odd I don't know, no, she probably doesn't like Candyland. So you just gotta tell kids. The only way to know if that girl has likes Candyland is to go up and ask her.
0: Right. I you know, one of my clients, he's an adoring fan of yours and he said that the (laughs) he loves, you know, the inverse power of praise the chapter on sleep, the chapter on race. He said that chapter three is, you know, again, why white parents don't talk about race has been the hardest one to implement. He said it's been, you know, how how do you begin to talk about race? You've given us some examples and how to sustain it on an ongoing conversation about race with your children. Do you have any suggestions?
2: Um, sure. Already he waited too long. Okay. I mentioned April Harris, I asked April. I'm like, hey, you know, we've been talking about this talk about raised with kids um for a long time now i know all the science you finally convinced me it took a long time um but so when should this conversation start and april sort of thought about it and said i don't know three six months oh my gosh wow that's pretty much my response um I was a little more profane but that was my response and she said well i mean think about a picture book and you know if you've got an infant in arms who's not even you know, looking at the book, well, then it's probably irrelevant. But once the kid, even before they speak, is, you know, is actually paying attention to that board book, think about how you read it. Oh, look at the giraffe. The giraffe is yellow. Oh, look at the boy. What color's shirt is the boy. That's right. It's blue. And you describe everything on the page except for the fact that one of the boy's color, skin colors is different. Oh, so my gosh, I, that's so true. Right? And yes. So before kids can speak, they're already being taught to perceive but not ask, discuss, or think about probably the most important thing on that page of all. Oh, my gosh. So again, that leads to the unicorn effect. And you, we obviously have to understand that, you know, a two- or three-year-old girl is not ready for a history of civil rights litigation and the Civil War and whether or not there should be reparations. Uh, And, and, I mean, obviously that's not going to help. But for the two- or three-year-old, you have to say the only way you know if people will be your friend is if you go up and ask them if they like Candyland. You can't judge them by what color they are or what language they speak or whatever they're doing. The only way you know is if you ask them. Wow. So it's just really calm and no big deal. And as kids get older, you know, giving them, you know, sort of histories and, you know, understanding more of the social context helps. But again, that's really based on kids' And their ages, and you know what else is going on in their world. So it's not that this has to be some constant drumbeat, and you know you have to talk about this. But you don't want to wait so long. And certainly, you know, with things like going on like Ferguson and stuff like that, if you haven't used that as a private conversation in your home to talk about race, I, I think you've missed an important opportunity. Although you have to be careful and see, I'd rather you have started earlier. Because research by Becky Bigler at the University of Texas at Austin has sort of found that historic conversations, a conversation about how, say, Jackie Robinson was taunted as he became a Major League Baseball player, has kids sort of think about, well, I don't think that's right, or those people shouldn't have done that. But a current instance of discrimination, the kids feel put on the spot. They feel like, Are you lumping me in with those white cops? Because now I have to defend them because I'm not, that wasn't bad. I'm not like that. They're not like that. So you're putting them on the spot in a way that, you know, makes them feel like they need to actually defend the behavior. And instead, what you want to do is these historic or fictional things, give them this level of comfort where they can have a conversation, but don't feel like they've been accused of anything.
0: Gotcha. So you kind of just, how, how would you approach it then as a parent having this conversation? You just start. Okay.
2: You know, I mean, if your kid's eight or nine or 11 years old and they're watching or they've heard about Ferguson,
0: you'd say, mm-hmm.
2: you know, what do you think about that? I, if, if that was my kid, I would say, you know, I wasn't there. And I haven't really been following all of the details of this exactly, but I know that there's this really big problem in Ferguson about, you know, the um, there's a tension between the black and white community. And, you know, I just wanted to let you know what I think generally, not specifically about Ferguson. We just use that as a launching point, right?
0: Gotcha. So you, don't
2: get, you don't want to get stuck, even if you've been following every last news break about what's going on in person you don't want to be stuck in that right because that's not what it's about it's about saying you know if you have any questions about racial differences or ethnicity i want you to always feel you know comfortable to tell me you know you can always ask me any questions and don't feel afraid to because kids even very young i think you're getting this message don't ask mommy i can ask on the playground don't ask mommy about this because this makes her very nervous
1: oh you're so right
2: and so we need to say, no, you can talk to me. And I, And that's when you say, yeah, well, you know, if it's a three-year-old, you say everybody can be nice, everybody can be your friend, just like the boys and girls. If they're eight or nine or 11, you want to talk about evolutionary differences and how people whose ancestors came from different parts of the world have different melatonin, and you want to go more scientific. If their brains can handle that and they're engaged in terms of why does this happen, then go for it.
0: Got you. Uh, You're just opening, giving them a forum of safety to talk about it.
2: Absolutely. And you don't want to wait until they've, you know, seen a a unicorn in the mall and freaked out.
1: (laughs) I can see that happening. And (laughs) I have,
2: you know, I have a, you know, and I've actually heard a lot of stories, both from parents, horrified parents, and from, you know, people who were in minorities who said, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. Oh, yeah.
1: I had a, um,
0: a kid or a friend of mine who's black, and he said that when he was a little boy, he was in an all-white neighborhood, and he went to the store and saw another black child, and he said he, he wanted to chase after him. You know, like, you're like me, you're like me. Mm-hmm. So he had never I, even had that.
2: Well, I, I mean, that's sort of a good story. I, I know stories of um, black people who have had children walk up to them and, and try and rub it off.
1: Oh, jeez. And wow. their
2: parents had literally never talked about it. And they didn't understand. And again, then everyone freaks out. And the kid doesn't know what happened except for the fact that they did some terrible thing. So everyone's upset. And if something like that were to happen, see again, you got to have the conversations early, right? That's yes. Present. But if something like that is happening, the, um, April says, you know, you don't freak out. You just quietly apologize, and then you get in the car and say, you know, you can always talk to me about any questions you have, but you ask me in the car or in the way home, because we don't want to embarrass or hurt other people's feelings, and that's true if you don't like someone's clothes, if someone's in a wheelchair, and you want to know why... No matter what it is, if they have something going on, you ask me. You don't just go up to a stranger and ask them some crazy question. because, Or it doesn't have to be crazy. You don't want to feel, again, embarrassed then. But you, you ask me because we don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And kids get that. And that's true whether you are talking about handicap status or anything else. And having that conversation really calmly in the car, it's no big deal. Anytime you have questions about stuff like that, let me
0: know. Great! You're teaching them social etiquette.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Who wants? I don't want to hurt anybody's feeling, no matter what I cause. Right. Exactly. Do need to learn that, but they also need your approval to say you can talk to me about the hard questions. And I think that you know that's something we want for our kids to learn from the get go. You know, the reason I give my kids honest feedback when about their drawings when they're six is, yeah, I know it's good and we shouldn't overpraise, but I also want that six-year-old, when they're 16, to know that they can come to me, and that I'll tell them a frank piece of advice.
1: Good, you know, my, yes.
2: You know I mean? My mom, mom, he doesn't like me. <gasps> he just doesn't know how wonderful you are. There are
1: other fish in the sea. Well, pff,
2: I just didn't go and talk to mom again about boys.
1: <laughs> right? right, it's, it's so it's, general. It's
2: yeah, so I mean, a sixteen-year-old comes up to me. Oh, he doesn't like me. I'm like, well, sweetie, maybe you should knock off on texting him every two minutes.
1: <laughs> that and, could be an they, issue.
2: Yeah, and I'm and I mean, I'm not being hurtful. I'm being warm and supportive. But I'm I'm telling them, hey, I think you might have screwed up here. How do we do this differently? Or you have a question on what you should do? Let's work this out. Um, so I think that important dialogue is really crucial and. It's kind of, you know, now having read the science and talked to researchers about this for so many years, it's kind of amazing that one of the most important social issues of our time, race, is the one thing we don't actually talk to our kids about.
0: Oh, I know. And this should be in our schools. I mean, it just makes me so angry that we don't have parenting classes and educate these kids in high school on how to handle great topics like this and praise and all of this. It Well, you know,
2: I, I, I mean... To me, if you waited until school, whether yeah, it was five or six or fifteen in high school, that was about ten years too late.
0: That's true. Give it to the Lamaze classes.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I just, I, I, I just think that you know, right now, everybody says the answer is always having something in school, and you know, most bullying starts between siblings well before anybody gets to school. And that pattern of abuse and use of power to control someone else happens in the home way before it happens in a schoolyard. So to me, every time I hear, oh, we need to do this in school, yeah, maybe. But this stuff started earlier, and we need to not punt it to the schools so that we don't have to deal with it. I also think the other issue, especially when you're talking about race, is, you know, teachers don't know what to say either. They're just as scared of these Right, true. And they don't get training in this as much as they should. Uh, but again, it's, re- you know, it also depends on, you know, individual kids and what they know and, you know, like multicultural literature, because there is curriculum. People bring it out for, you know, Black History Month or whatever. Um, but again, it's often so vague, it's meaningless. It goes back to the everybody's equal, and everybody's holding everybody's hands, and some right. little girl just goes, but I don't like her. Why would I hold her hands? And that has nothing to do with race. It's just it's such a foreign, out-of-touch thing with their perspective that it doesn't make sense. And by then, actually, kids will re-remember texts, to conform with their stereotypes. So uh, researchers have actually tested the efficacy of these multicultural textbooks and find, you know, they ask the kid, well, which kid pushed someone off the slide? Was it the black kid or the white kid? And the white kids will say it was the black kid, even though it was the white kid. Oh, geez. Because their brains literally rewrite the story so that it seems in keeping with the stereotypes that they have in their head. So again, that's why I'm saying it got to start really early. And it doesn't have to be a big deal, but you have to have these conversations straight on so that kind of thing doesn't happen. And, again, it's sort of interesting, you know, I think most people sort of expect, well, but I was respectful to the African Americans in my community. I, you know, work with people of all different backgrounds at work, and I do this, and I do that, and why aren't the kids just sort of getting it from the exposure of my interactions? But, the research says that there was very little correlation between what the kid thinks and what the parent thinks. There's a strong correlation between what the kid thinks and what the kid thinks the parent
0: thinks. Ooh, got you. Like and when we that, don't point out the different colors in the books of the people's right. skin.
2: And they just fill in the blanks. And, you know, and this isn't just limited to conversations about race. Researchers have found that with middle school students and what they think their parents' morals are. Um, not the same as what the parents' actual values are. So we have to just be really calm and tell them specifically, here's what I think. And make sure that our actions are consistent with our words. But we can't just say actions are louder than words for little kids because they're not. Gotcha. Also, kids' exposure to your world is actually surprisingly narrow. So yes, you may be working with people from around the world, different kinds of friends, but your kids don't come to work with you. They don't know.
0: That's right. And they don't see that.
2: They don't see it. They don't see it. You know, you could be on the phone with someone you know, who's in China or in Kenya or wherever. They don't know. They just hear you say yes, yes, and they look around at the people who drive carpool. And geographically, most of the kids who are in carpool are of the same race. So they just assume everybody you know looks like them because that's
0: the only people they see you with. Well, what's the best way, do you think, to get this information out because it's so valuable? You know, how do we get this information out to the public if it's not in the school system? Where do you think that it would have the best, you know, how can we get it out there?
2: Well, i did not say not the schools. I just don't want me us to be entirely reliant upon them. I gotcha, gotcha. Okay, <laughs> you know, there, there's a middle ground. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm big on spectrums. The um,
0: I well, of course, I, your book is great. Yeah, you yeah can I mean, buy I, the book. I don't
2: really know how to say that. I wrote Nurture Shock" because I didn't think people knew about the science. I didn't know about the science, and that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I'm on talking to you on your podcast. I. Beyond that, I hope that, you know, people do read Dr. Shock, do look at other articles I've written, listen to podcasts like this, and, you know, continue the dialogue. I don't have yeah. to beyond
0: that. <laughs> the, re- the research was amazing. I mean, you know, and it's hard to dispute the research. It's so good in the book. And, you know, sometimes in my practice, I'll get clients that will tell me, well, research, it's all biased and you can make research come out any way you can. And for some reason, parenting issues, they they tend to like, they don't like to, they ignore research sometimes, you know, research shows that spanking doesn't work. They still want to spank, you know, they just seem to ignore it when it comes to parenting. I don't know why.
2: Well, I, you know, I actually think that at least before Nurture Shock, and, and I'm honored that I think we've sort of changed the way people talk about kids, um, but I felt that, you know, a, par- a typical parenting book is a book with 400 bullet points of what you're supposed to do, but doesn't actually say where they got that information.
0: Right. Uh,
2: it, and everyone. Will tell you how to raise your kids. I can, you know, you can walk up to a stranger on a street corner, and that person will absolutely tell you everything you're doing right and wrong with your kid with no compunction, right? Your parents, the teachers, grandma, everybody has an opinion, but nobody says why. And so what we did actually for nurture shock is we only presented the science and we laid out, you know, here is how they tested the effects of praise, here is how they look yes. at
0: lying. That was so and, important.
2: And here's the finding. And we there are no tips in Nurture Shock. I'm giving you some because we're talking, but in Nurture Shock we said, okay, here's what the scientists have done. Here's what they found. Now it's up to you to decide how you apply that in your home. And you may say, my kid's the one outlier and this doesn't apply to me. Well, the researchers have taught me that you don't say you're wrong. You say, really? What's going on in your house? Why is your kid different? What's going on? So my hope with Nurture Shock was that The next time someone said, here's what you should do to fix your kid, that the parent could say, well, how do you know that? What was the science? What was the experiment? What are the other issues that are going on? And giving people tools of how to unpack these bullet points of advice, which I think in some ways, there's so many of them and they're so contradictory that then everybody just does tune them out. So ah, that was you. the main thing. I mean, I think we're all a little frustrated that every day some random study, you know, news at 11, thinking causes brain cancer.
0: <laughs> right. And
2: then, and then tomorrow, news at 11, thinking prevents brain cancer. You know, the rip and reads I don't think are helpful. Um, but if you put the research in a context and you explain how did someone do something, what are the issues involved, you don't even need to give the advice. You just say, this is what they're thinking about now. What are you
0: thinking about? Exactly. You you lay out all the research, which is dynamic and great, because you you give them all the details of the research. You know how we did this, and that's what's so important. And then you leave it up to them: do you want to implement it or not? But you're you're exactly. showing the science behind yeah, it. Yeah,
2: and and I we're total geeks, so there's I think it's four thousand words of references in Nurture Shock and it's about eighty five pages of references in Top Dog. And so if you have any questions, where did we get this? That there it is. Nice. And um yeah, occasionally I'll say to my mom, you know, such and such happened and she's like, Really? I'm like, mom, I don't make this up. Really? Don't. I have the study. <laughs> Would you like the study? Dude, i am emailing it to you. And it, and because it is often surprising, but yeah, we don't make this stuff up. We've got lots and lots of science behind us, and um, it's pretty actually exciting. There have been over a hundred peer-reviewed journal articles that now cite to Poe and me as an underlying scientific source. Oh, is,
1: nice!
2: Yeah, because I, 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 I always take pains, and you know, when I'm giving speeches or something, someone will ask something. I'm like, well, you know, I'm you, I'm not a therapist. I'm a reporter, and I'm not a scientist. I write what the scientists are doing. Hey, we need it. So, yeah, but I have no compunction doing that. But So when the scientists are actually referring to my work, um, I, I find that pretty exciting. I think that it shows we're on the right
0: track. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Now, what about you? Now They can find your books on Amazon, bookstores, right?
2: Um, yes, everywhere. Uh, Barnes & Noble, I think, is having it on sale. And uh, 12 bucks overnight delivery. And uh, but yeah, hardcover, electronic, audio downloads, in stores. I I love actual stores.
0: Yes, I do too. I and love all them.
2: Those things work.
0: Now, how um, what you have any new projects you're working on now?
2: Uh, well, I I'm still really I've been doing a lot of lectures and tours and relating to both Top Dog and Nurture Shock. So that's pretty much been taking up my full time. I'm working on a couple magazine articles right now
0: and Mm -hmm. other things. Yeah, don't stop. Get the information out there. (laughs) We need it. We need it. All right, so how can my audience find you?
2: AshleyMerriman.com. Okay. Or Twitter. I also am on on Twitter. Um, There's also some Nutrushark and Poe and Ashley Facebook fan pages. Uh, But I keep, you know, pretty good schedule of where I'm speaking and stuff like that on my website and twitter is
1: a little bit
0: random but i'm, I'm on twitter <laughs> okay
1: awesome and just
2: so they can always you know put a post or email me or tweet me or something anytime
0: awesome and i'll also have on my show notes you know um, links to you and everything you offer so they can find you easily on my show notes as well oh
1: thanks well ashley gosh it's been such a treat to talk to i got to ask all those questions that were sort of, you know, in my mind swirling around, and you really answered them well, so I
0: really appreciate it. Yay! And thank, thank you so much just for giving us this information. It's extremely valuable. The research is incredible.
2: Thank you. You know, I, it, as again, I'm just the reporter, but it's, it's an honor to bring such important science out into the public, and it's a responsibility and a privilege that I'm really grateful for.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Sure. Wow, that was so good. I could talk to her for hours and hours. I just want as many people as possible to have this information, so please pass it on. It's so good for our children. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed Ashley and all the fabulous research. The show notes, resources, and links will be located on the podcast link on my website at PamelaChambers.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, and you can receive my five favorite apps, in helping your child develop an emotional IQ. Thanks again for spending time with me and Ashley Merriman. Looking forward to seeing you again. Until then, keep listening to Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life. Love, peace, and let's talk. This is Pamela Chambers at PamelaChambers.com signing off. Thanks for listening to Smart Choices for a Happier Life at PamelaChambers.com. Wishes for you to have a blessed day.
2: Just for you to have a blessed day